The scripture reading this morning is going to be from Romans 12. And we will read Romans 12, 1 and 2. The word of God reads, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by tasting you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And that, is, that ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father, we continue in your presence. We live in your presence. In you, we live and we exist and we are. You're the one who has delimited the boundaries of our habitation. As Paul told the Athenians, you are the one who controls everything we are and do. And we act and live always in your presence. All things are bare, are naked before you whom we shall give an account. And Father, we come to you aware of your majesty and your greatness. And we come to you very mindful of our mediator, of our savior, of the one who turned your throne of justice. Because righteousness and truth are the foundations of your, tru of your throne. But because of Jesus, it has also become a throne of mercy. And we appeal to that throne of mercy through the new and living way Jesus opened for us. And we cry out to you, help us, come near us, assist us as we consider your word. And not only we pray for us, but we pray for Pastor Kevin at Vineyard across the street. We pray for the Filipino brethren across the parking lot entrance. We pray for Pure Heart on the bay next door. We pray for Church of Hope on 128th Street. So many churches we go by when we even come to gather in ours. We pray for your people gathered today on your day bless them, glorify your name in their midst. May Christ be proclaimed, sinners saved, your name honored and glorified, and help us too, Father, as we open the word and give ourselves to considering what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. There is a tension in the gospel. There is a tension probably in all of the Bible as we read it. We find these, these paradoxes, these apparent contradictions. If you follow bloggers and, and people who are against the scriptures, they'll say, oh, there are hundreds and hundreds of contradictions in the Bible. And I would say to that, yes, there are. Uh, there are many contradictions in the Bible. But they are not true contradictions. They are paradoxes. They are tensions. If you come from a presupposition of unbelief, you will see them as errors. If you come from a presupposition of this is the word of God, 
you will see the tension of a mind that we cannot grasp and comprehend. And those tensions have an explanation, but they are tensions. One of them is the tension between grace, faith, and obedience. For some, to preach obedience is nearly a heresy. Any directive, any exhortation, any commandment to obey is you're not teaching the gospel of Christ. But the Bible is filled with imperatives. The New Testament has hundreds of commandments. Hundreds. That are based on the great indicative of Jesus paying for our sins, Jesus living the life we cannot, and dying for the sins he did not commit but ours. But in that reality of salvation being all of grace, by faith, and all of God, there's this tension that, well, that means something. We are called to obey. And this morning we find one of those passages that reflect what Jesus told his followers. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but do not do what I say? Calling Jesus Lord out of lip service without putting your money where your mind is or where your heart is means absolutely nothing. And here the Apostle Paul presents us with that reality of the gospel and the reality of what is our response to that gospel. And Romans 12, 1 and 2, in my opinion, is perhaps the most balanced or the best explanation to solve the tension between salvation being all of God, all of grace, and yet those who are saved are called to obey and to follow Christ. What is the context of, I beseech you, brethren, I plead with you, I urge, I exhort you, whatever translation you're following, I beseech you, present your bodies a living sacrifice to God in light of God's mercies. Well, this appears in the context of a letter, the letter to the Romans. And we are accustomed to see the books of the Bible and do a 64-part series on Romans chapter 8. When the letter arrived in the church, it was not a 64-part series. It was just all of these combination of, of scrolls, and they were read in one sitting when the church was gathered. It is just one letter. Paul is not writing an encyclopedia. So the context of this word is the first 11 chapters of Romans, of the letter to the Romans. And I try to put in that graph a little bit of a summary of what Romans is about, and I know that some of you are studying Romans in Sunday school, but pretty much the context is that Paul writes a letter that the, three, the first three chapters, he describes the universal culpability of mankind, everyone, whether they have heard the gospel or not, whether they were under the law or not, whether they are Jews or Gentiles, everyone is under sin. All have sinned, and all have fallen short stayed short, didn't meet the measure of the glory of God. And after that universal culpability, then Paul moves on to the section of justification by faith. But they are justified 
freely by his grace without works. And all the way through chapter 4, Paul deals with the issue of forensic justification, forensic righteousness. Justification and righteousness is a declaration. God pronounces the guilty righteous on account of Jesus' life and Jesus' death. Both things. Jesus lived in perfect obedience to the law and to God's standards, and then Jesus died as if he would have been the worst sinner because God put on him the sin of all of us. Then in chapter 6, Paul deals with the reality that those who believe that are freed from slavery to sin. There's one thing that does not exist. That I receive Jesus as my Savior, but not as my Lord. That's a heresy. Jesus is Savior and Lord. We are transferred from the kingdom of darkness, from the kingdom of Satan, to the kingdom of God's beloved Son. Oh, but I'm one of those Christians that I, yes, I raised my hand and walked down the aisle. I was even baptized, but I lived like a devil. And then you are in the kingdom of the devil. <laughs> You're not in the kingdom of God, period. But then in chapter 7, Paul says, well, we are freed from the slavery of sin, but not from the presence of sin. And we fight and struggle and fall daily, every minute, every hour, every second. We keep falling short of God's standard. We cannot make it on our own. Chapter 8, free from condemnation, we are freed to live by the Spirit, not according to the flesh, because those who live according to the flesh will die, but those who live according to the Spirit will live. And then in chapter 9 through 11, Paul answers the question, and what about Israel? What happens to them? And Paul says, well, they were the ones to whom God gave the covenants, the law. From them came the patriarchs, the prophets, even Jesus according to the flesh. Though he is God over all, he came from Israel, and God will deal with his, with his people at the end. In the very same context, he's dealing with us through Christ, through the church, by faith in him. And then in light of that explanation that I gave it to you in four minutes, that's the letter to the Romans. He says, therefore, by the mercies of God, by this gospel I have explained to you, then I beseech you, brethren, present your bodies a living sacrifice, which is your rational, your spiritual form of worship. Why? Because commitment and compromise are the response of grace. You heard our pastors this morning explaining the whole issue of commitment and how our vision as a church involves this element of we need to be committed to Christ. Well, that commitment, that compromise is the result, is the answer, is the response of a person who has understood grace. If you really, really understand the gospel, and I've been raised as a Christian since I remember since I was born. And I've been hearing the gospel since I was a little kid. I was, I was taught in a Roman Catholic school, and they, they read the Bible and taught the gospel. But the gospel didn't become real to me only after later in life when I really understood the meaning of Christ died for my sins. When you grasp that, the answer, the response, is 
compromise and commitment because compromise and commitment is the appeal of grace. The beseeching of grace is precisely that. And in our text, it is an appeal. Paul says, I beseech, I plead with you, I urge you. In Spanish, os ruego. Why? Because coerced obedience, manipulated obedience, is a time-ticking bomb. It doesn't work. Some of you parents have seen it with sadness in your adult children, hating the gospel in which they were raised. Why? Because they were raised in a system of coerced obedience. We have seen many people who appear to persevere for some time in the gospel, but after they have a chance, they explode and rebel. You may not know this, but I'll say it. There is this lady today in her 40s who was one of our children 30 years ago. And she wrote and posted in her social media that her dream is to install a stripping club in this very church building. That is the hatred she feels today for the gospel because her obedience perhaps was coerced or because she has never come to know Christ. The point is that obedience is an appeal of grace that only works in hearts that have been softened by the Holy Spirit and by grace. It doesn't work any other way. I'm not saying don't set rules in your household. When my children became adult and they were still living with me, I remember telling them, and thankfully they are both Christians, uh, thankfully, by grace. Not because we were good parents, but because of grace. But I remember telling them, guys, you're adults. I'm not going to ask you to live like Christians, but since I pay the bill and you live in the house that I pay the mortgage and I am the one who gives you food, there are two rules in my house. Life has to be clean and on Sundays you go to church, whether you believe it or not. But to live here, you have to live a clean moral life. Why? Because God hates fornication. End of the story. Now, you may not believe it. You may disagree. Hey, you're more than 18. You're on your own. You can be flying a helicopter in Iraq if you want to because you're an adult. But as long as this is a roof that I pay for, these are the rules. Take it or leave it. That doesn't mean you don't set rules, but do it in grace. But the real, real obedience from the heart, the obedience that is birthed or is born out of a good conscience and a clean heart, it's only the obedience that is the appeal of grace produced by the Holy Spirit. Secondly, the appeal is prompted by the mercies of God. Paul doesn't say, because God is fearful, and he is. Because God is a consuming fire, and he is. Because hell is real, and it is. But Paul doesn't appeal to that. Paul says, by the mercies of God. The mercies that I explained to you from the book of Romans. By the mercies of a God who kindly willingly, openly, without any coercion, without anything from the outside to move him, without owing anything to anyone. Because that's the way Romans 11 ends. Who gave to God first that he might be a debtor? Who did something for God that God might have to repay that person back? 
And the answer is no one and nothing for him, by him, through him, and from him are all things, and to him alone is the glory. But he chose to save. He chose to send his son. Jesus came willingly to take the sin of his people on the cross. By those mercies, then I plead with you, present your bodies a living sacrifice. Obedience comes from tasting that the Lord is good. If you don't know what I'm talking about, it's going to be hard for you to obey. Have you had the experience that I have had? Do you have this good buddy at work? And he gets promoted or she gets promoted. And that person becomes your supervisor. And all of a sudden you stop being buddies. And you, st you start not liking that person as much as you liked them before. Because now he's the boss. That antagonism we feel towards our boss is not the boss's problem, it's ours. <laughs> we don't want people to rule over us. It is, it is part of the sin of Satan in heaven. He didn't want God to be God. He says, I want to be like God. And that still remains with us. That, that rebellion towards the police, towards the government, towards whatever represents authority to us. Who's the most hated person in an NBA game? The refs. <laughs> we hate them. We don't like them. We don't like the umpire at baseball. We don't like authority. Right? Well, God's authority, when it is tasted that it comes from a good God, and the psalmist in Psalm 34, 8 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. One thing is to, if you're, like, if you're a chocolate lover, is to see the chocolate fountain there with chocolate ice cream and chocolate chips and brownies and, and Vulcan lava chocolate. You know already. If you, know, if you hate it, I'm sorry. That's my example. But one thing is to see it. And one thing is to do like, ah, wow, it's good. Psalm says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And then he adds, how blessed the person who trusts him. And that's obedience. Obedience is trusting God's will above our will. Obedience is believing God in spite of our logic, <laughs> Or the circumstances. God says, do this and it will go well. And if you in those little things of life, especially you guys who are young, success when you're old is not just one zapping that one day comes to you. No, it's doing the right thing every day. One little thing done right according to God's will. When you accumulate that over 20, 30 years, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed, blessed, happy, joyful, the person who puts their trust in him. That's the context of this obedience that is stemmed from the reality of God's mercies. And God's goodness removes the traction of sin. What do I mean by that? Phys physics, class of eighth grade. Friction. People say, oh, I don't like friction. We need friction to live. If there is no friction between my shoe and the carpet, I cannot propel. If there's no friction between the wheel of your car and the pavement, the car cannot move. The goodness of God 
removes the friction and the attraction of sin to act. What do I mean by that? You've gone to Texas de Brazil? You've heard about them at least. Or the knife? Or any buffet, even if it's a cheap buffet, right? What is the trick? Come to our salad bar. And because you're hungry, because you say, oh, I'm not going to eat. I'm going to have all the meat I want. And you decide to skip lunch and just go at 6 o'clock hungry. And you see all the bread and all the salad and all the things they put. And you just pile the plate and have it. (laughs) They've already made 50% of the meat they have to give you. You start it. And then they come with that pan de bono, the Colombian bread, bono bread. 75%. And then the first thing that they show you is what? Chicken. Nice breaded chicken. And by the time the meat comes, you just have two or three pieces. And you paid 75 bucks to eat salad, bread, and chicken. (laughs) That's exactly what sin does. Sin tells you, have it now. And God says, no, no, the good meat is later. There are pleasures forevermore at my right hand. There are delights forever. Wait. Wait. But sin says, no, aquí está el pan de bono. With some butter. Do you have some butter? Yes, sure, all you want. (laughs) That is the traction of sin. Sin removes from you the sight that God is good. That's the way the devil came to Eve in the garden and he hasn't changed. Oh, so God has said not to eat from every tree of the garden. And it still works. Really? So God has said abstain from fornication. Don't have sex until you get married. Really? But that's so hard. Why does God want to prevent you from the pleasures of sex until you're married? Or don't buy this or enjoy life. Only one life to live. Buy what you want. Just get the payment. It doesn't matter if you get indebted. Because God is not as good as he portrays himself to be. But when you taste and see that the Lord is good, (laughs) sin loses all traction because you start Trusting him with all your heart. That's the appeal of grace. And what is the request? Sacrifice our own bodies. Kind of weird, isn't it? Sacrifice your bodies? Present your bodies a living sacrifice? Well, yes, because we serve God with our bodies. I'm not going to your birthday but I'll be there in spirit. No, no, no. Sorry. Find another story for someone else. Be in my birthday present. I want to see your face. Brethren, I'm not gathering with you, but my spirit is there. No, 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 no. Do not forsake the gathering of yourselves together to exhort one another to love and good deeds. It's presential. It is here. Present your bodies because we serve God with our bodies. We are not disembodied spirits. When in 1 Thessalonians, Paul prays for the church, he says, may God sanctify you completely. 
yes, yeah, sanctify my soul. No, no. Your soul, your spirit, and your bodies. Completely. Because it's everything we are that is presented as a living sacrifice, and that includes our bodies. Now, it's interesting that Paul says a living sacrifice, and this is coming from a rabbi. Let's not forget the author. The author is an expert doctor in Jewish Old Testament and theology. What did Paul have in mind? There was only one offering that was burned completely, the burnt offering. Many of the other offerings, the priest would take his portion and eat and give to his family. But the burnt offering, the offering of dedication to God, the offering of worship to God, that offering had to be burned out completely. Nobody could take from it. It was the purpose of that offering to express total dedication to God. And this is what Paul has in mind when he says, present your bodies a living sacrifice. Perhaps you remember Genesis 8 after the flood. Noah comes out of the ark. He packs clean animals. And he offers a burnt offering to God. The text reads, And Noah built an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled. It, it's poetic language. But you get the point because God doesn't have a nose. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma and said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of humankind. That's the meaning. That when that burnt offering was presented by someone and said to the Lord, here's my animal, take it. And he let it burn. God received it with pleasure. When somebody in response to grace tells the Lord, take my heart and let it be consecrated, O Lord, to you. Take my money, take my wealth, take my intellect, take my time, and let it be all for you. God is pleased. It's a spiritual sacrifice, Paul says. Why? Because it is not fleshly. It is not tangible. You're not bringing your pet. You're bringing yourself. And it is a living sacrifice. God said to Abraham, Offer me your son on the altar I will show you. And offer him as a burnt offering. That's what God asked Abraham in, in Genesis 22. And when God saw that Abraham took that knife and he made the the wind up like a pitcher and had the knife ready to slit his son God shouted twice Abraham Abraham stop your arm and don't do anything to the lad because now I know now I know you love me you haven't refused me your son even your only son of course it's a picture of the love of God who gave his only son on the altar of Calvary. And God didn't stop his own arm. He slid his son to save us. But still, God was pleased with a servant who didn't refuse anything to him. It's latreuo, from where idolatry comes. It is worship. It is adoration. 
It is dedication. It is giving it all to the Lord. It is my rational, conscious, voluntary, intentional act of worship. Because it is not the kind of thing you do after the worship group plays a nice song. And they repeat it and repeat it and repeat it. And your emotions get on the way. And you start weeping. And you dedicate yourself. No, no. And that's fine. If that happens, that's fine. That's great. Not criticizing that. But it is the rationale. It is the mind-involving act. Intentional, voluntary, conscious, intellectually done. Of saying, my life, my time, my resources, what I have is for God. I don't want to use my own example, but I will. 61 going to be next month. You know what my motto is now? friend calls me, hey, we're planning this trip. Do you want to come? Yes, I'll go. But somebody calls me, hey, I need, a, I need help with a pulpit. Can you help me? Yes, I can help you. Of course, I check with the pastors because I'm under their authority. But the point is, I'm not going to miss out anything. I'm going to die soon. I don't know exactly when, but I'm not going to miss out on life. I'm intentionally decided to live for God. Is that your intention? Or just let time pass me by? Don't let it pass you by because it's passing anyhow. Now, Paul appealed to obedience. He didn't try to manipulate obedience. And it's very different. The word he uses, parakaleo. And you've heard the Holy Spirit, the parakletos, the comforter, the exhorter, Paul is giving an urging, an exhortation, a comforting word. By the mercies of God, I plead with you, do this. Because you can manipulate obedience. You can fake obedience. Guys, I've been doing this for 43 years, going on my 44, and I know a lot of the tricks of the trade, and I know a lot of the hypocrisy you can do and manipulation. I've been manipulated. I've manipulated others. I've done everything wrong in the book, and let others, I have let others do everything wrong in the book with me too. So what I'm saying is there's a wrong way to go about this. And I'm stealing this from Steve Brown. Manipulated obedience. And it seems to work well. It's widely used, but in the long run, it's not effective. You can manipulate with guilt. How could you, after seeing the cross, not do this? You can manipulate with, after all that Jesus has done for you, this is what you do? That sounds good and sounds theologically right. And if you put a couple of verses behind it, it looks great. But th that's not what Paul is doing. Paul is not manipulating anyone with guilt. I like this one. He's encouraged with comparisons from the competition. I like that. It's, it's like the rooster who shows up in the chicken coop after having been with the eagles and having seen an eagle's egg. And he goes to the chickens and says, Hey, ladies, I really do not want to say anything, but I've seen what the competition is doing. Their eggs are really big. So this is when we start saying, oh, look at Vineyard, what they're doing. Oh, look at Christ Fellowship, what they're doing. Oh, look at this church in the Dominican or in Bolivia or in wherever. Look at what they're doing. We should be doing the same. That's not obedience. That's manipulation. Telling stories of the heroes of the faith, biographies, but making sure you don't say the bad things. We want to be like John Wesley, don't we? 
Yes, I want to be like John Wesley. Except in one thing, his wife beat him. <laughs> Arnold Dalimore says that in his biography. Sometimes he showed up all caught. What on earth is going? Well, the, the wife scratched him. Oh, but you don't say that. He's a man of God. He was, but he had, a rough, he had it rough at home. A.W. Tozer, great man of God. We love his quotes, love his books. His wife and his children had their complaints about him as a dad and as a husband. I heard a sermon that the pastor gave me about Pastor Kevin Fletcher here, our neighbor from, from the vineyard. He says, 20 years ago, we were growing. We were doing great. The church was fantastic. And my wife called me and says, I need to talk. He says, you may think that you're a superstar, and you may be in church. And he was very humble confessing that. But in the team at home, you're not even in the team. He says it was very humbling for him to hear his wife say that about him. So this is not about stories of the heroes of faith without showing their weakness. I remember Pastor Martin many years ago saying, Hey guys, we have the treasure in earthen vessels. Therefore, do not be afraid of letting the mud show. It's okay. We are cracked vessels. You see the cracks? Big deal. The glory and the power belongs to Jesus, not to us. That's what 2 Corinthians 3 says. I spent years and years trying to cover the cracks. And people tell me, why do you use you, yourself as a bad example? Because what, what, how do you want me to teach you about Jesus? To tell you about how heroic am I? I am not. I'm just like you. But His grace deals with mess-ups like we are. That's the point of the story. That's the point of the gospel. The treasure is Him, not us. The stick and carrot technique. Oh, be careful with God's discipline. You get cancer. God will break your leg. So you obey all your life because God can do something to me. Give your offerings because if you don't give your offerings, you're going to lose your job. <laughs> don't give any offerings without fear. God loves the cheerful giver, not the fearful giver. Or follow me as I follow Christ. Read the context. Paul is not setting himself as an example. He's encouraging the Corinthians in their weakness to follow Christ just as he does it in his own. It's not like, look at me so you can see a picture of Christ. That's not the deal. To conclude, I want to quote from two men. One of them is Sinclair Ferguson. He says, until grace and God himself masters a man, that grace will never flow out to other people. He will become Jonah under his tree with a heart shut up against sinners in need of grace because he thinks of God in conditional terms. Grace will make you kind, compassionate, tolerant, patient, and merciful. If grace makes you sour, if your theology makes you a know-it-all and a righteous or holier-than-thou, you're reading the wrong book and you're getting theology from the wrong teacher. That's reality. I was talking with Nana 
before the sermon, and we were sharing how you see Christ better from the darkness. What darkness? The darkness of your own failures, the darkness of your mess, the darkness of your sin. Oh, does that mean that we have to live double lives and be duplicitous to see Christ? No, it means that the more you see Christ, the more you see how dark you are. Why do you think Paul says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all iniquity? And he's writing to Christians, John, not Paul. Because the more you confess and the more you grow in grace, the darker it, get, it gets. The more you get out to space, the darker it gets. Because the light is only from him. Alexander White wrote, I love this quote, There is such thing as sanctification by vinegar. It makes a man accurate but hard. When people come tempted by sin, broken by it, and ashamed to confess the mess they made, it is not a counselor who has been sanctified by vinegar they need, but one who has been mastered by unconditional grace. Now, do you know the context that follows present your bodies a living sacrifice? The previous context is the gospel. The following context is using our gifts in the church. So how do I present a living sacrifice to God? Oh, I'm going to go to India as a missionary. No, I'm going to find out here in Cornerstone who do I serve and how can I serve. Or wherever your local church is, I'm going to find out how to serve the Lord and His people with my gifts, my time, my resources, my talents, my abilities. That is the context of the passage. And I don't want to discourage you but I want to tell you of a dream, and that's going to be the end for me. Because compromise and commitment are the appeals of grace. But here's my dream. On Thursday, I was praying. I try to pray in the morning. And uh, there's a problem when you try to pray in the morning. First thing you do, you may fall asleep back when you're praying. And that happens to me a lot. And perhaps I fell asleep, or perhaps I had a wandering thought. Whatever it was, and it was not a vision, because I'm not a Pentecostal, and I don't see visions, and I don't hear voices, and I'm not into that. But this is what happened to me. I either fell asleep, or I went wandering, and I saw myself at the judgment of God. And he asked me, show me your works. And I'm there in my dream or in my imagination, and I said, okay, 43 years of doing this. I couldn't find anything. I couldn't find anything to tell God in that dream. And for split seconds, I started to panic. Literally. I don't have words. I don't give thanks to people. I don't visit people in jail. I don't visit people in the hospital. I don't give food to the poor. I don't do anything. And I started panicking. And all of a sudden, my mind remembered Isaiah 49, 23 which reads, Then you will know that I am the Lord, and those who hope in me 
will not be disappointed. And I remember that Paul uses that text in Romans 9. And in my imagination or in my dream, I said to the Lord, I have nothing to show. I'm sorry. I have nothing to show. I can't remember anything that I've done as good works. And I was in anguish. But you said that those who hope in Jesus will not be disappointed. And all I can tell you is that I hope in your son. He lived in perfect obedience to you. And then he paid the price and the penalty my sins deserved. And I either woke up or my mind came back to me and I took the prayer where I left it. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. We have been saved by grace. And this is not of yourselves, not by works, so that anyone should boast. It's all of God. But we have been created, according to God, for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we may walk in them. May the Lord help us to understand grace and to put ourselves a living sacrifice on his altar. Amen. Father, bless your word and use it for the purposes you may have for us. In Jesus' name, amen.